Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Today, my conversation is with Professor Stephen Biddle of the Elliott School of International Affairs. Prior to joining the faculty at George Washington University, he was a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He also served as an advisor to General David Petraeus in Iraq and General Stanley McChrystal in Afghanistan. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you with us. You know, Stephen, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are now the longest military engagements in U.S. history. Is it your view that the United States will be involved in military and intelligence operations in both of these countries for a very long time? To the extent we care about the outcome, then we will. If the United States were to completely disengage from either of these two theaters, my guess is our position and our allies would collapse. Now, it's not unheard of that the United States makes that choice and suffers those consequences, but if we want to avoid them, then a very long-term commitment is probably necessary. One of the things that I've always heard from ambassadors who have served, particularly in Afghanistan, is that if we leave, very quickly Afghanistan will fall apart and will be a safe haven for terrorist organizations. And yet, you do have the feeling that the terrorist is particularly ISIS and perhaps Al-Qaeda too, as it's morphed, has been able to go to other countries, whether it be Yemen or Libya or even now Syria. Well, that's right. And as a result, when you think about the articulations that you know, especially the Obama administration made of what our interests in Afghanistan are and why we should be involved. The two that historically have been advanced are not of equal merit. Mm -hmm. So the, the usual argument is we need to be in Afghanistan to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a terrorist haven from which they could attack us or our allies. But as you point out, there's nothing particularly unique about Afghanistan in that context. There are dozens of ungoverned or ill-governed spaces around the world where Al-Qaeda isn't now but might be in the future and could someday become a terrorist haven if the way we're going to deal with that problem is by sending 100,000 American soldiers to prevent it from happening in the future, we're going to run out of soldiers a long time before Al-Qaeda runs out of havens. It's the other of the two usual arguments about the U.S. stake in Afghanistan that's potentially more persuasive. And that argument is we don't want Afghanistan to become a base for destabilizing its neighbors. And that's kind of code language for Pakistan. Pakistan, of course, is an active nuclear weapons state and one which is waging its own counterinsurgency war and has been for years and by various indicators isn't doing very well at it. If Pakistan's counterinsurgency fails and the military and the intelligence services there split, you could imagine about the only plausible scenario on the planet at the moment by which an extremist group gets its hands on a usable nuclear weapon. The fate of the American counterinsurgency project in Afghanistan can influence the outcome of that counterinsurgency in Pakistan by the same kind of means that Americans usually worry about Pakistan affecting Afghanistan, that insurgents can set up base camps and havens outside the country in which the primary war is being fought that they can use to wage the war better. If Afghanistan were to fall, it is very likely that the Pakistani Taliban and other militant groups active in Pakistan would set up base camps in Afghanistan and that that would substantially improve their military prognosis in their war against Islamabad. If Islamabad were to fall, there are potentially grave consequences for U.S. national security. It's that second, less direct stake 
that the United States has in Afghanistan that's the more important of the two. And that is literally unique to Afghanistan and Pakistan. There's no other place in the world that poses quite I'm almost that viewing a, a football field where everyone's fighting over the 50-yard line and who's offense and defense. And in a sense, you do have the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is about 1,500 miles, and it's still contested, the Duran line. Mm -hmm. So where does that fall in? I mean, are the two governments making progress in at least establishing what their border is? Well, the Duran line is kind of famously controversial, famously porous, and relatively arbitrary in nature. The exact location of the Duran line, in my view, tends to be kind of a proxy for deeper disagreements between the two countries. The Pakistanis have long viewed Afghanistan as a strategic depth for a war against India. Mm -hmm. The Afghans, unsurprisingly, don't appreciate having their entire national interest viewed in this way. The Afghans have, for some years now, been increasingly convinced that it's Pakistani support for the Taliban that has kept war ongoing in their country. So that there are fairly deep disagreements between Afghans and Pakistanis that go beyond just the historical question of where the border should be that have made relations between the two increasingly testy. And it's especially testy right now. Where does it stand? Are they negotiating at all or are they at a stalemate? At the moment, there's a certain tendency to negotiate by 155 millimeter artillery. The problem at the moment, the sort of immediate set of issues is largely that Pakistani Taliban have already started to set up the kinds of base camps that I talked about earlier in northeastern Afghanistan and the Pakistanis are annoyed that the Afghans aren't shutting this down mm -hmm. and preventing raids and sorties from being launched across the border. Because the Pakistanis recently have been much stronger in trying to control and eliminate or at least have some jurisdiction over the Taliban. Well, the Pakistanis have recently waged a series of offensives against Pakistani Taliban in the federally administered tribal areas that have tended to drive some of the insurgents across the border and into Afghanistan. The Pakistanis would like the Afghans now to act against those insurgents and destroy them on the Afghan side of the border. The Afghans, on the other hand, A, have their hands full, B, are extremely annoyed at the sheer irony of Pakistan host to the base infrastructure for the entire Afghan Taliban, which they have deliberately facilitated over the years, now asking the Afghans to shut down base camps for their insurgency. So the net result of this is that Pakistani offensive has tended to drive militants across the border where they are now operating with some impunity and they're annoyed about this. For a while, certainly Ambassador Holbrook and Mark Grossman were working on trying to see if there was a seat at the table for the Taliban. Where does that stand now? Well, the negotiations were starting to make some progress before the death of Mullah Omar was announced. Omar apparently... And that was when? That was, what, three or four months ago, or was it long Well, the, we, we don't know exactly when he died. There was an announcement in 2015. Oh, a long time ago, okay. The problem with Omar's death was not that Omar was particularly important to what was happening. Apparently, he was dead, after all. But the fact that he was still nominally in charge meant that the various factions that make up the Taliban were still willing to cooperate with each other in some sort of coordinated policy, which looked like it was going to include serious negotiations with Kabul and the United States over the termination of this war. 
when Omar's death was announced, there was an immediate succession struggle within especially the Quetta Shura faction of the Taliban, but with tensions that cut across several different factions. That made it practically impossible to pursue negotiations with the Kabul government or the United States because it risked having whoever was willing to negotiate look weak to other contesting factions. And as a result, the talks have been pretty much in deep freeze since that time. There are rumblings being made now that perhaps the talks could restart. There are a variety of reasons to hope that perhaps they might, but they haven't been moving very far for quite some time. And as our time draws to a close, President Trump just recently announced his desire to increase the military budget, and primarily for hardware aviation assets, ships. So what does that mean for Afghanistan, where you're really looking at special forces? It's very hard to divine what the Trump administration's views on Afghanistan really are. The president on the campaign trail talked about Afghanistan almost not at all. Remarkably, we've got a war going on in this country, and yet it was invisible in actually the last several election cycles. It's hard to know whether he's going to see this through the lens of terrorist activity, and approach Afghanistan the way he appears to be approaching the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, escalation of the effort, or whether he's going to view it as a failed policy of the old administration throwing good money after bad and simply walk away. withdraw and walk away. Certainly, Ashraf Ghani and General Nicholson would very much like the United States to recommit to a longer stay in Afghanistan. And again, if you don't want the project to fail, some sort of continued U.S. stay is certainly going to be necessary. But the administration has been very cagey so far about exactly what it is that they're going to do. I think you could say they've been cagey on a, a lot of issues. I think <laughs> that would be a fair assessment, yes. Stephen Biddle, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.